Welcome to Above the Noise, a podcast at the intersection of faith, race, and reconciliation. And I'm your host, Grant Lee Martelli. Welcome back. I'm excited about this episode as usual, but today we're turning the tables. One of my first guests on this podcast, Dr. Andrea Sims, is here, and he's co-hosting with me. He's going to turn the tables and be the interviewer and try to help me get the story out, why I do this podcast, where it came from, why what it means to me, and begin some discussions that we hope to continue in the future on some very pertinent topics. So I hope you enjoy it, and write me and let me know what you think, and some topics that you would like us to discuss together as well. All right, my brother, this is a uh, changing of the guard, if you will, for this particular podcast. So I've had the privilege of being on the receiving end of some very wise questions and your expertise as the guy that can lead a podcast for the masses. And so now we're allowing me to test my wares, see if I can't uh, reciprocate some of your uh, experience and wisdom uh, in interviewing. And I really want to start off with your family growing up. Give us some insight as to where you are from, uh, whom God placed in your life as stewards since he's the owner. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for doing this. And we can have this conversation together. I've been looking forward to it. I was born in Barbados in the Caribbean, and I grew up there until I left to go to college at the age of 19, age of 19 in Idaho. Uh, we were a big family. There was eight of us children uh, and my mother. My father was around some of the time, but not all the time. So we grew up in the Caribbean, a uh, pretty poor family. Uh, didn't know at that time what it was. I tell people all the time I had to come to the ed- to the United States to be educated and what we were, <laughs> what we just thought was normal. <laughs> and, uh, and that was something that we did then back then. Um, five sisters and two brothers. Wow, what number are you? I'm number seven of eight. Number seven of eight. So so we grew up with our mom there in, in Barbados. Yeah, so... Uh, Coming to the States, the objective and the goal, the reason, the motivation, educate us as to. So I came to the United States because I had a dream was to go to college and to become a doctor. Okay. And that has always been my dream. As I grown up in the Caribbean, I, I saw three groups of people that at my younger years that I saw were successful. If you weren't white, uh, it was a doctor, a lawyer, or a politician. And, wow. Uh, so okay. I chose to become a doctor I want to become a doctor. Uh, I guess I wouldn't have had a hard time being a politician. I I, I could figure that out. <laughs> but that brought me to the United States to attend college, a university there. From there, I went to um, graduate school at Utah State University, studied biochemistry in preparation for medical school, uh, but never made it into medical school. I ended up going into the environmental industry, the science industry, so being a quality control chemist in a research lab, and then going into the environmental uh, field chemist, uh, cleaning up uh, hazardous materials, contaminated sites like 
used to see on TV in the in those days with the people in the white suits and going into these places that were contaminated with highly deadly substances. Uh, I did that all around the country for a number of years. Wow. Wow. And so that transition to kind of go down the actual chemist route, as opposed to what I'm assuming would have been initially a, a medical MD route. Was some of that just your, your enjoyment of learning that field at the graduate level and that, that enjoyment transitioned you there as far as the, the chemical route or was that life in medical school didn't seem to be as feasible yeah, I was, due to I, life? I, I've always been interested in science. I, okay. In high school, in the Caribbean, what we call secondary school, once you get to your last three years, you had to choose a path of it. You want to follow a science path, a, com- a commerce or business path or a technical path, which technical would be like people who wanted to do like architecture, technical drawing, that kind of stuff. I was drawn to the science mm-hmm. field, always interested in science. Um, came here and studied chemistry in college, and like I said, biochemistry. But it, it wasn't feasible. I came to the conclusion it wasn't feasible for me to go to medical school without a lot of debt. And then even re- even analyzing, you know, whether I could make it or not. Okay. We, we have some similarities. So I'm not seven of eight. Uh, my dad is 10 of 11. <laughs> and uh, I too was a pre-med biology major in undergrad. So I just think that's interesting that you have that history. So tell us about your religious background coming from Barbados. Uh, obviously, there are some religious underpinnings that would be different foundationally than if you were born and raised here in the state. So give us some history surrounding. Yeah, Yeah. we we grew up. uh, My mother was from St. Lucia. My father was from Barbados. Uh, St. Lucia is a very Catholic country. Okay. Uh, Barbados is a more Anglican country. Wow. Okay. After the more British involvement. Their history there, Barbados was always a British colony, never changed hands. St. Lucia changed hands between the British and the French and um, a number of different times. So my mom was Catholic growing up, and, and and in our house, you basically followed what your mom said. So we were Catholic growing up most <laughs> okay. of the time. My father didn't really go to church um, that much. Um, so we, we were following a Catholic back, background, had to go to catechism, had to go to mass, had to learn the prayers and the rosary and that kind of stuff. My mother was very religious, very devout follower of Jesus Christ from a very young age. Um, we missionaries came and visited our house, and my older brothers, two older brothers, started to go to the Church of the Nazarene, which was an evangelical church. Um, they started going there. We would go there periodically for special services, Mother's Day, Christmas concerts, that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, then my mother, well, they had a competition every Mother's Day at church that the the family who brought the most people would win the Bible. And, you know, my my brothers told my mother about it, and she won like three, four years in a row with her <laughs> and her eight kids <laughs> all in possession. And procession, and she decided, well, if I'm going to do this, then I, I, she started going to the Nazarene church, and she became a Christian there. Once she became a Christian in the Nazarene church, she um, abandoned Roman Catholicism, 
Um, wow. And we all became members of that church because, like I said, we we followed what our mother did. Yes. <laughs> so yes. That became the place that we went. We went to every Sunday, went to Bible school, youth group, all of those things. My mother was a very devout Christian, and I always say in my life, if I could be as 10% as faithful as she was, then I would be satisfied that I have met wow. the level of fear. Just 10% would put you above the norm. I love that. She, she believed that God could do everything he said he could do, that everything in his word was literal, and that if he said you can move that mountain, she would stand before that mountain and said move until it moved. And I believe that she could um, pierce the windows of heaven. You know, you hear about mm-hmm. that woman in the Bible who prayed, who went to the king and asked, and the king says, you know, well, you know, why are you bothering me? And the Bible says she persisted until he finally said, okay, what do you want? Yes. And uh, that's my picture of my mother who just hit the throne every day until God relented and said, I will grant you what you need because I need to spend some time with some other people. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, Coming out of that Anglican and and Roman Catholic history, uh, what were some of the cultural clashes growing up in a missionary-led church? Well, I think on the islands in the Caribbean and most places where there was colonization, you had that clash, right? You had Catholicism, and then you had Anglicanism, and, you know, Moravians, and and then you had what be, what was called evangelical churches, right, out of those, those the Catholic and the Anglican were considered the established churches, okay. right? The Church of Rome and the Church of England, and they had lots of power and, and um, lots of presence, the nicest buildings and that kind of stuff. Uh, but we also saw, you know, as we were growing up, that there was some conflict there. You're living in the Caribbean, and, and people are telling you things like, you know, people are wearing suits to church, Right polyester suits to church and it's 85 degrees outside (laughs) that kind of stuff i you know sweating profusely and that's the best clothes they had you know in the week they would be going to work and barely what they had and then sundays they were dressed up and we were like that doesn't make any sense you know you're just hot and sweaty all the time and the music you know that we we sang I was in a school choir, you know, we sang a lot of those songs like Jesus, Joy of Man's Desiring, Handel's Messiah. You know, these big churches had organs and stuff in them that to some of us was like, again, that doesn't make sense. We're in a poor country and um, everything in the church is worth more than everybody in our family is ever going to make in their whole life. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And... uh, you know, things in Latin and all those kind of stuff, which, which was okay. But within the Caribbean context, there seemed to be clashes because what we were also being told was that your culture, your history is not godly, right? Mm. It's pagan. It's ungodly. And in order to be a Christian, you've got to give those things up and you've got to follow this European type lifestyle, right? The kind of music you listen to has to change because your music is not good. It's, it's bad, you know, Calypso, Reggae, and the African type music. And you've got to listen to that. I had one, 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 one missionary said, you know, to be a Christian, you've got to listen to um, country and Western or, or classical music. 
Growing up for me, that just never made sense, you know. And they call me a <laughs> yes. rebel, and my friends are rebels. So we'd be like, "No, <laughs> no, we're not doing that." <laughs> you know? So we formed our own band uh, at a young age. Some friends of mine formed our own band, and we started playing music. And um, and you know, the churches, the evangelical churches, were pulling away from some of that. You know, you'd have the the, the formal thing, and then they'll say you have choruses and and celebration, which would be Caribbean. So we started playing a lot of reggae and a lot of calypso. And, I love that. And then we also played Andrea Crouch, and we played all those kind of music too. But we got a lot of criticism for playing reggae, and for playing calypso, for playing soca music. Uh, we wrote most of our own music, but we got a lot of criticism for that. I remember one time going through the downtown in, in the city, there was what we call a bus terminals, where everybody, most people catch the bus, right, or walked or rode a bicycle, and there would be these bus terminals, and the preachers would rent space in the bus terminals to preach. We call them open-air services, right? Yes, yes sir. I, I, I understand. And preach, and there'd be all these people preaching, and we'd be down there sometimes hanging out. Sometimes we'd play for some of them. But one day we were we were we were so poor that even while we, even though we were musicians, sometimes we had to catch the bus to get to our engagements. Right? <laughs> so we, we'd be carrying the instruments with us through town okay, okay. to get to the bus to get there. And this preacher was preaching, and he saw some of us that he knew, and he looked over there and he said, "You, you guys." You were going to go to hell because you're playing the ungodly music. <laughs> wow. Out, out in public. <laughs> yeah. And everybody looking at us and we're just like waving and we said, okay, but we're not going to quit playing it. <laughs> you know, we just went along. So those were some of the contrasts that you saw, right? Is who we were as people of African descent. We couldn't hold on to that if we wanted to be Christian. Wow, there is so much there that I'm not going to say. <laughs> uh, because I want to get to some other things about your uh, your trek, your journey. But at what point did you, just, just because I can't let it go totally, at what point did uh, God, the Holy Spirit, provide some additional confirmation slash validation slash fruit of the spirit that you were on the right track, even though you were being taught and trained, uh, told and instructed that you didn't have those liberties in Christ. So I think that one, uh, there was a, a number of different manifestations. One of them was um, in our church, even though there were some people who believed that there were some people that we considered to be mentors who were speaking into our life, who were telling us, keep doing what you're doing. Mm. It's okay. Right, keep doing what you're doing. It's okay. Some pastors, some teachers, some people like that. We also noticed that when we went to play, people were attracted to the music. Hmm. Both believers and non-believers were attracted to the okay. music. Yeah, right. They were keen and they would want to listen. The churches had what they call fairs, which is like harvest time. They would have a big celebration. Okay, they'd have music and there'd be food and stands around. Sure. You know, and, and other bands would go there and they would play, and they would play good music, but they'd be most doing country, western, that kind of stuff. But when we got up, man, and we start, we, you know, you hear pop, 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 and we began to some reggae music, the place just came alive. 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I know the difference. From alive, right? <laughs> and, uh, and and even the Rastafarians and people who were considered outsiders, you know, would come in and participate and stuff. And we would we would see that. <laughs> and it would happen everywhere we go across the entire country. And we were one of the few bands growing up that every every band had its annual concert at that time. We would hold our annual concert and no matter where we were, we would pack the auditorium. And these are just a little bunch of poor kids. You know? Yeah. I mean, it took us a whole two years to buy one guitar. <laughs> you know? and, uh, but we could hold a concert and the place would be packed with people. And that just kept telling me, what you're doing is right. God is not caring about that stuff. God is calling people. And we would see both Christians and non-Christians being drawn. And to me, that was, okay, <laughs> this can't be wrong if God's drawing people to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between <laughs> assimilation and, uh, in, and integration. Right. And, uh, yeah, I know. So my next question, just because I'm giving <laughs> <laughs> I want to stay on task. So the assimilation expectation does delve into this idea of racist ideas. Correct. And so talk about that for a minute, just what it felt like to be you uh, in that season of, again, what you were being told and what you were being taught as opposed to what you were seeing God do. What I saw was, you know, and uh, sometimes it was the missionaries who were teaching this. You know, the missionaries at that time were all white. And then some of the local pastors and stuff would assimilate that because they wanted to be pastors. They wanted to be promoted and that kind of stuff. They were our friends, and we, and we understood what they were trying to do. What they, you know, what we came to realize is, is what I call today Christian nationalism. What they were teaching was not biblical Christianity. They were presenting the Bible, but the, the practices that they were telling us we had to follow, right? Yes. So one time you're preaching the word, but on over here you're saying to live the word, you have to become like us, right? Yes. Scripture doesn't tell us to become like the preacher. It tells us to become like Christ. Amen. Right? So we, we began to, and, and I was just thinking about this, you know, even with the slaves, right? Because the slave owners try to use the Bible and the church to keep the slaves in subjection. Yes. But the more they taught the Bible to the slaves, the slaves assimilated the word of God and became Christians, but they didn't accept. And they were not accepted by the people who were preaching the gospel to them. Isn't that something? And we're still seeing that today, right? Most of the black churches and most of the church of the people of color came out of that. Yes. Accepted the theology that God can be your savior and your Lord and master, and you didn't have to become white. Yes, you didn't have to become like these other people, and I, I, whether it's colonialism or, or not today, you know, Christian nationalism that we see going on, it's all about the same thing. People are saying, in order to become a Christ follower, you have to be like us. And what me and my friends were rejecting was, we want to be like Christ. We don't want to be like you. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Which also speaks to. This idea that Psalm 139 has communicated that, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, marvelous are his works. We are, you are, your peer group and friends in Barbados represented marvelous works. 
Right. You don't need to conform to anyone <laughs> other than the one who saved you. The one who saved you. you yeah. Know, the other thing about that was that we learned also, we had some pastors who really challenged us and because we would have these arguments, you know, the Caribbean, in the Caribbean culture, I mean, you talk and you argue and you, you got hands moving and heads and moving, forth, heads moving. And then you go and, you know, you go and hang out together, you have dinner together. That's not going to stop you from being friends. You know, we have arguments about everything, literally everything. But some of our pastors would say, if you guys feel so strong about that, you need to go and get in the word and see what it says. Right, that's what they would tell us. So we would go and read the Bible and see what it says, and we would buy books. You know, we study different religions. We study the theology. We study the doctrines of the church. We would study these things ourselves because they challenge us to. I love that. I went. The more we did that, the more we find out that we don't have to be like them to be like Christ. (laughs) And we, we 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 had so much fun in church. Church was so much. Growing up for us, church was so much fun because even though that was the, the 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 what I call the post-colonial era, we had pastors who just challenged us to get into the Word, to find out what God says, and to live what the Word of God says. And even and and they even told us, God never said you have to agree with everything we te- we preach. You That's have to good. agree with everything He teaches. That's so good. Yeah, there's, we have some adults that still don't understand that truth. <laughs> I right. mean, people that are today in the church today that yeah. don't know that the Holy Spirit is the best Bible teacher they're ever going to meet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, then that automatically seg- segues us into because God chose to use you and your friends at such an early age. How did your call to ministry come to pass? Uh, my call to ministry was a long call. You know, when I came to the United States, I went to a Christian school. And I also realized at that Christian school, there were some of these same things being taught, right? Some of these, some of these same racist ideas, right? I, call, I come up with this new word. I don't even know if it exists. I call it post-colonial traumatic syndrome. Mm. <laughs> Post-colonial okay. traumatic syndrome. It's prevalent over there in the in the islands, and it's prevalent over here. And I had one one call one advisor at college. He never met me before. He never seen me before. And I'm going through the line registering for 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 classes. And he, you know, had the advising line, and there you go with your professors to get the classes. He said. Well, I think you need to start with some remedial courses. I'm not sure that you're you're ready to start, or at, at you know the college level. And I said, "What makes you say that?" He says, "Well, you're from the Caribbean, and I'm not sure you're you're ready for this." And I said, "Well, who are you to tell me that?" I says, "I'm here to get an education. I'm here on the four year plan. I'm starting on year one, and I'm graduating in four years. And what you think about me doesn't really matter." <laughs> he had never heard anybody <laughs> so, tell him that to his face before, right. I'm sure. He never. So my sponsor who brought me to the United States, such a godly man who God gives so much wisdom, even though he was white, he had this heart of compassion and understanding. He had what, what I've learned today is called cultural intelligence. Mm-hmm. So he was a professor and he saw me, he was look, he was registering people, but and he looked up and he saw this conversation. Then he looked at my face and he saw me and he said, he said, come. 
So I went over to him and he said, what just happened there? And I told him. And he said, don't listen to him. Take this right piece right of, there on the spot. Yeah. Just said, don't listen to him. He said, "Get take this piece of paper, go over there to that professor. He's in charge of the chemistry department. Tell him, introduce yourself, tell him what you want to do. He'll take care of you. So I go over there and I talk to him. His name was Dr. Arthur Emil. And I told him what happened. And he said, ah, don't listen to him. He said, I'll make sure you graduate in four years. Here's the courses that you want that you need to take. Wow. So I went through my first year of school. And um, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I learned how to study. And um, I ended up on the dean's list. Right. I didn't even know what Congratulations. The dean's list was. Yeah. I got this email saying you're on the dean's list. So I, I called my sponsor. I, I was at my sponsor's house. I says, What does it mean to be on the dean's list? He says, Your grades are good enough that you're going to get an additional scholarship. And, um, and it means that, you know, you're at the top of the class. So I'm walking across campus the next spring, fall, getting ready to register for classes. And who do I run across again? Same gentleman. Same gentleman. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, I guess you really showed me. And I'm like, I forgot all about this because I don't have time for him. I've been dealing with white people like this my whole life. Right? Wow. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? He says, you're on the dean's list. I said, I know. He said, you don't remember our conversation? I said, I don't have time for you. And I left. Right, because I'm not wow. going to dignify him with a conversation. He didn't know who I was. He didn't know all my capabilities. He didn't take time to know me or ask me anything. He just assumed that I was inferior because I was black and I came from the Caribbean. No doubt, no doubt. Wow, I love that. I, I yeah. So, getting back to this ministry call, you know, and in school I wanted to be a doctor, so I focused on that. But the school required us to take uh, some biblical literature classes. So every year I took biblical literature classes and I and I would always take advanced classes and 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 you know get into them, really enjoy doing it. But I never felt I never you know, people would tell me, you know, you should be in ministry and stuff. And I'm like, no, God has my two brothers, my two older brothers are ministers. <laughs> and, <laughs> he's uh, got enough. <laughs> he's got enough. And I got other things I want to do. You know, but I would enjoy these classes and I would take these classes and we would get into some really me and my, by this time now, there was two other guys from the Caribbean who would come, you know. <laughs> in my path at that university, there's about 12 people now who've come because of me being the first one to be there. So we'd be in classes together, and the professor would be teaching stuff, and we'd be reading, and we'd be like, um, I, I'm not sure that I agree with what you just said about that, you know. Right, right. <laughs> we have these discussions in class. And after class, the other students would always come up and say, why do you guys keep arguing with the professors? You know, they, you know they're always right. We're like, no, they're not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, they're not. But, and then we would go and talk to the professors, and they'd be like, "Man, we really enjoy the questions you ask. You know, keep bringing it on. We love the challenge. We, we, we don't like when everybody just sits there and and just writes down everything. You know, you guys really ask these questions. So the professors were saying." You know, we like the back and forth. Okay. And the students okay. were like uncomfortable because they were saying, you know, who are you to question the professor, right? Yes. But it was the same thing we were taught growing up back home, right, by our pastors. Get into the word, get into the books, 
and learn what it has to say and be willing to talk about it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, when I think about that professor that <laughs> spoke to you both semesters when you were registering, I think of that first Samuel 16, 7, for God does not look at what man looks at. Right. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I just think that way, way, way too many believers are preoccupied with what does the world say I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. or how I'm supposed to look, act, think, walk, as opposed to what God's word says surrounding who I am, which you and your peers clearly understood at a very young age and walked out at a very young age because you came to the States at 19. That's still young. That's still very young. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, it wasn't the, so, so I got through college and we did, we did, we, we, we went on to graduate school. I was involved in the church my whole life and, and, and volunteering at church. And I started studying what they call, um, the course of study, just again, just to try to get into more of the word and doing men's groups and, you know, promise keepers at that time and all that kind of stuff. And I, it was 20, the short answer to it, it was 20 years between when I, people started telling me that I needed to, to, to think about being uh, the call till I actually accepted that it was <laughs> actually a real call. <laughs> it was 20 years. <laughs> You know, and it was just a quick story on that. And uh, we may cut out some of these stories, but, you know, I was in what it was called a course of study, which is for people who are working, who don't have time to go to seminary and that kind of stuff, right? But it was really watered down and it was really sappy and it was just, you know, a lot of books and and questions that didn't make any sense, you know? And I was like, (laughs) and I was talking to one one of the pastors one day after doing a study of John Wesley. And I said, you know, this whole study of John Wesley didn't have nothing to do with what the Bible has to say. Wow. Why do I care about what John Wesley's favorite passage was and what songs he wrote? He says, Grantly, you just got to learn that you got to pay the price if you want to get there. You know, just do the courses, pass and you'll be fine. I said, excuse me, but I don't have time to pay the price to please somebody else. This, this is not what God has called me to. So I dropped out of that program. <laughs> so a district superintendent calls me up and he says, Grant Lee, what's going on? And I told him, he said, I said, that thing is really annoying. He says, yeah, I know. We're going to revamp it and we're going to push it. You're not the only one who said that. So he said, but I got a challenge for you. <laughs> I said, what challenge? He said, don't give up on your, on your call. I said, I'm not, but I got to find something that works. So a few years later, I, I went to a meeting, I was on a board, and he was on. He called me into his office, and he said, this new program has just started, an online program for a master's degree in pastoral ministry. I think it would really challenge you. He says, I know if I put you in anything that's not challenging, you're just going to tell me no. So he said, call this person, talk to him about it, see what it is all about. So I did. And I called him and, and he said, I guarantee you you're going to be challenged. And if you're not challenged, I'm going to apologize to you. And he was right. It was a wow. master's level course, right? So yes. I, I don't have a bachelor's in religion. I've been in the seminary and I rolled in a master's level course. And that was the challenge that I needed. Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> wow. Wow. So 20 years in the making was the call. Mm-hmm. And 
from biochemical undergrad passion and education to what I know to be a career in transportation. So talk about that transition. So when I got out of college and graduate school, I, I first went into, like I said, uh, research as an analytical chemist and uh, doing some research uh, for, for drugs to treat uh, Billy Rubin and, and jaundice in, in newborn babies. And it was a good, it was a good job. Then we moved, my wife got a job in Salt Lake City and we moved there and I was working in a factory uh, doing quality, and again, analytical chemistry, but it wasn't making a lot of money. So <laughs> one day, you know, we were talking to different people and, and I met some headhunters, you know. Sure. And didn't really know what they did. But one day I was at work and I got a, and my wife got a call and According to what she told me was this guy said, I am this person. And Grantley's name was given to me by, by this other person. And we have a job that we think he may be interested in. It's a field chemist. And she said, well, he's not here, but how much does it pay? <laughs> and he told her, and she said, he'll be at the interview. <laughs> so I came home. <laughs> she said, uh, you got this call today from this person. It's about a job interview. I asked him how much it paid, and I told him you'd be interested. So you have a job interview coming up. Give him a call. Wow. So that job interview took me then from the laboratory work into a laboratory in the field work with this was a hazardous materials field chemist for a company that went around cleaning up polluted sites. We clean up laboratories and factories and and ground contamination and that kind of stuff that resulted from chemicals and stuff in the ground. This was a Superfund era, what they called the RECRA era, Re Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, and brown fields and green fields and cleaning up all that stuff. So I got into that and I, I started doing that. While I was doing that, you have to learn transportation because you cannot, a lot of the materials that you're taking care of, especially in laboratories and factories, you have to send to what they call a treatment facility to be treated safely and disposed of. You can't put it in the garbage. So okay. You had to learn the regulations for how to transport this over the highway. So I started learning transportation regulations, right? 49 CFR and the hazardous materials are in chapter 40 of the Code of Federal Regulations. The transportation laws are in the 49th chapter of the Code of Federal Regulations. And then um, I got put in charge of projects out there on the field. But I was traveling all over the country. Obviously, you can't, you know, hazardous materials doesn't come to you. You got to go to it. Right? Okay. So I was <laughs> gone a sense. lot at that time. My kids were young. And my wife started saying, well, you know, you're really gone a lot. And uh, you missing, I miss some of the key things in my kids' life. You know, I, did, I try to get the first day of school and some of those, but I miss some of the programs and stuff like that. So I decided I wanted to have a change. And um, so I started looking for some other jobs. So, so, so I, I know hazardous materials. I know underground storage tanks. I know transportation, right? And um, this job I saw came up for the Utah Transit Authority as a environmental uh, coordinator, manager, coordinator, then became manager. And the description was to help clean up the, the contamination that had been caused by 
underground storage tanks, leaking underground storage tanks, you know, oil and diesel. The same thing with like junkyards and sure. yeah, that. So I applied for the job and I got an interview and I got the first interview and the second interview and I never heard about it from it. So I kept doing my job, you know. Sure. And, uh, so one day I'm in Texas at Texas A&M University doing some cleanup and I got this call and it would say, oh, yeah, we're from Utah Transit Authority. Are you still interested in the job? And I said, what job? <laughs> he, he, he said, it had been that long. Yeah, he said, I know we take long, but you remember the job that you I said, yeah, I remember that. I said, I thought you guys had hired somebody. And he's saying, no, he, he, he says, we're a public agency. We take a long time to do everything. So <laughs> if you're interested, when you come back home, we want to talk to you. So the short of the story is that's how I get then from taking all that field experience and then applying it to the a public transportation agency, helping start the, the public transport, the, the environmental department, cleaning up stuff like that. And then um, started learning then about public transportation and the, the other parts of that part of it. And, you know, God really blessed us in that. I was able to come home, get off the road, and be, be, be more involved in my family life. And, you know, the, the thing about that is, you know, I became the first black executive ever promoted in that organization. And under, the lead, under my leadership and, and my leadership, we became ISO 14,000 certified. And then a, a group of us, myself and the chief operating officer, and a, a couple of us, again, got together, and we led the organization to become the first ISO 9000 certified transit agency in the United States. And then I went on to lead it to become the first OSHAS 18001 safety management system certified agency in the United States. So I was the first executive, and we were the first triple ISO certified public transit agency in the country. Wow. Wow. That's phenomenal. That That is a demonstration of God's hand upon your life. And uh, the fact that while you you may not identify yourself as one of the sharpest knife in the drawer, the, the fruit of your skill set, uh, certification, degrees, uh, job experience, and quite frankly, vision for what can be all came to fruition and manifest itself in this first uh, organization to actually have those three ISO certifications, which is phenomenal. Yeah, you know, God has led me in a very, as I look back on my life, you know, I have a presentation that I do says, walking in the footsteps of the books of my youth. So being poor you got you don't have a lot of money to do a lot of fancy things but you can play games yes you can read books you can <laughs> yes. go to the beach and you can imagine none of those yes, cost a lot of money <laughs> yes right? sir because you get the books from the library so we did a lot of reading my friends and I and we did a lot of imagining Yes. And when we got through reading things like Robinson Crusoe and Animal Farm and all of those books, 
we started reading encyclopedias <laughs> just for the fun of it. Wow. <laughs> right? Wow. And we would talk about these things, the Taj Mahal and the Statue of Liberty and the Eiffel Tower and all of this stuff. And we would dream about being there, right, and going to these places, not having a dime in our pocket. Hmm. We used to walk down the street looking for coins in the gutter so that we could buy a loaf of bread at the store. Right. Here Literally. We are, here we are dreaming about, you know, the Statue of Liberty and, and, and wow. all of these places wow. and going to Africa and safaris. But, you know, as I look back on my life, God has taken me to India. We've seen the Taj Mahal. We've been to Jagpur. We've got an Aladdin rug in our living room that was made in Jaipur, India, that my daughter got to pull out. I've been to the Great Wall of China three times. I've been to the Eiffel Tower. I've been been to New Delhi. I've been to Gabon, Africa. I'm going to Kinshasa here in in a few months, right? I've been to the Statue of Liberty many times. So as I look back on that, the, the, the concept is, all of those things that we were imagining, yes, I am checking off on my list of all the things that I have been able to do. And the blessing of it is, is that most of those things I never had to pay for out of my pocket. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Not only did you do them, but then you didn't have to pay for them. Right? <laughs> so God has blessed me tremendously to be able to become a citizen of the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I know I'm I'm looking there we have checked about 55% <laughs> and it's so rich yeah. like like it, it's going to need to like marinate a little bit for those who are tuning in I I believe we're going to have to have a part 2 yeah we probably have to have uh, a, we're going to have to have a part 2 because it uh, as my grandmother says it gets more gooder <laughs> uh, as, as the story goes along God's hand on your life his favor on you as his son, as his called servant, and on your family. And and I'm like I can't wait till we get this part two scheduled and, and come back at it. Yeah, I mean I, I am too. You know, God like I said, God's been very good to us. And uh, you know, and my mother, I think about my mother, you know, she she always encouraged me, right? My mother didn't understand a lot of things I wanted to do in my life, right? Yes. She would say to me, uh, you're, you're building castles in the sky. You're building castles in the sky. And I would always tell her, yeah, it's better to build them in the sky because if you fall, then you at least land on a cloud. When I left Barbados to go to the United States, they were having a party for me, and my mother said to me, Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, I send you. <laughs> That's good, brother. He will take care of you, and he will help you to accomplish everything that you dream and you desire. And and to the letter, she was I, yeah, spot on. She was spot on. I came to the United States with $159 in my pocket to go to a school that costs at that time, about $10,000 a year, right? So $40,000. I graduated from college with zero debt. Hmm. So, you know, God has brought me from from that to where we are today. Our children are grown. We have two 
biological children who are grown, and we have two adopted children who are grown, and, and we have, uh, let's see, two, four, seven grandkids, if you put all of those together. Wow. They're all taking care of themselves. They're, 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 they're doing well, you know, so, so God has blessed us. Amen. Amen. That is a high note to, to finish on. Again, there's a legacy there. So, uh, yes, yes, you, you definitely want to tune in to uh, part two of this podcast for sure. There is more to come from the Martelli legacy in Jesus. Thanks, Andre. I appreciate you you taking the time to, to work with me to get this together and to put together this this time to share my story with our listeners. I was blessed, brother. Remember to subscribe and leave us a rating. Ratings are very important to helping our podcast succeed in the podcast universe and helping it become known to other people. Email us your comments at AboveTheNoise24 at gmail.com. AboveTheNoise24 at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at AboveTheNoise24. Thank you for listening. Please share this episode with a friend. 